doing a whole ass intro. All right, it's a whole fucking. We're (laughs) we're the second half of an explicit podcast, tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory. (laughs) If you aren't caught up with us, that's a weird spot to be in. If you're listening to this one, Uh, this is the second half of our coverage of the final section of Lightbringer. so this we're going to be covering uh, chapter 80, 85 through 89. Hey there, this is Cross. I am a total nonsense, not serious at all, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware that we were doing <laughs> We did a truncated <laughs> I mean, outro for the last episode. I figured we'd do a truncated I know, intro. I know, but I to me, to me, there's like a little bit of there's a little bit of sense that has to be made of these things, specifically because this episode is weird. I mean, in the in the way that we're recording it, in addition to like presentation, <laughs> we didn't plan on this being a two part episode, but we got like halfway through everything yesterday and we didn't have enough time to finish it. So we just said, bucket pause. We'll just release the first two chapters because it was so damn long. And then we would do the rest basically yeah, today. So, little little peek behind the curtain. We're going to jump from nice daytime PJ and Crossland after this intro, it'll be last night, PJ and Crossland. <laughs> so there might be a drop in sobriety. Can't quite recall for the next two ep- or two chapters. And then we'll finish the last three chapters with daytime, daytime talk hosts. I can't believe it. the fact that you had to preface it with, I cannot remember <laughs> to drop in sobriety. No, is I, not, I'm just not instill confidence. <laughs> I, I don't think you either you or I got too too intoxicated last night but i can't remember if there's a noticeable i mean i speech. think it'll be noticeable from right now you yeah, know and, and then from like where we'll be at so since this is kind of a truncated intro pj already talked about the chapters that we're talking about what are you having for this back half episode um i have a leftover topo chico margarita <laughs> hard seltzer that i found in my fridge don't know where it came from cheers yeah i also have as the Back half beer, it's a peach pear LaCroix. <laughs> Where necessary, there's a LaCroix to follow. Similarly to you, I'm I'm a little bit light on this one. What I'm doing is another high-pitch mosaic IPA, so it's the same thing that I had yesterday. No, it's actually not. I had Modest Swank yesterday. I did not have this. Or did I? Did I have it during game night? I drank one of these yesterday. It was during game night after we were done. Okay, so... Yeah, uh, but a high-pitched mosaic. They're great. It's uh, from Highwire. Had it many times on the show. And then my front half, back half, whatever the hell, is just like a, two ounces of whiskey. It's a it's a light pour in a small glass is like, if if needed, as far as ammunition goes. As needed. So, yeah. Uh, very excited to get into these chapters. So with that, we're going to go back in time to yesterday and, and here we are now good luck with that we get into chapter 85 darrow dusk and dawn 
We pick back up with Darrow for the first time since our shock ending with Gaia last week, and it seems as though Gaia is willing to suffer Diomedes' plan, as he has not been struck down on the spot. The statue of Demeter of Plutus stands watch over this confrontation, of which I think is critical and representative as a detail here. In mythology, Gaia is typically referred to as the titan of Earth or land or the world in general, or just as one of the original primal forces being watched over by Demeter, arguably the closest thing to Greek's proper inheritor or Greece's pop Grecian mythology's proper inheritor of Gaia um, is Demeter by and large. And I think that this is kind of a crucial detail that we can't overlook that like these two are used in juxtaposition with each other in the scene. Better yet, the storm and lightning emblazoned cloak that Diomedes wears calls to the authority of Zeus, especially since he will be appointed to the role of Hegemon. Yeah, it's such a well-constructed, meaningful collision of of all of these uh, mythological terms. Or or Mm -hmm. um, I only assume that Pierce had something like this in mind when naming Gaia. And probably not this specifically. Like, I, I, I don't pretend to think that he had this all planned out to the minute uh, way back when. But but something. Like, I, I'm sure he mm-hmm. had some grand plan for, for how Gaia would shake out. So Yeah, I do believe, if I remember correctly, that the Garter is referenced in previous books. So, like, Demeter was there. I don't think Gaia is brought into the picture until Iron Gold. So that kind of feels like there's some intent there. Yeah, it was when Lysander meeting with her was was the first um, yeah. interaction right. with Gaia. Yeah. So yeah, not that long ago. So maybe maybe some more tangible connections to the way this actually shakes out, but I still don't think I don't know. I have a hard time believing when, that when you, they have such concrete, specialized plans on uh, how books go, authors in general, book series like this truly, that go so long. It truly depends on the author. I mean, obviously, I think I think we can definitely say that pretty concretely, but I think I think it varies a little bit. There's one thing to be said, though, about specifically when you're borrowing from a mythology so immediately that like all of it's connected and they're you're borrowing that paratextual history right and so immediately you're taking on board all of that extra mythology as a bonus to what you're doing which is a great thing that this text does right and so as a bonus affect we're talking about this now which may or may not be the case and does the answer actually matter no but is it a fun thing to posit on top of the text does it add additional context potentially or does it add additional depth to things Maybe. Yeah. So it's fair. I mean, it's it's fun. We asked Pierce through Instagram DMs if Severo was named after hmm. Severus, Marcus Aurelius's right. like brother, not actually brother, but like referenced yeah. as a brother. And nope, just a happy accident in that naming convention. So yeah. like it, there are things that can just kind of happen. That is sort of the the bit about like paratextual, right? Because he's borrowing from something that exists, it can add or color other contexts as long as it's wielded mostly correctly. And I don't think he ever stumbles into like the wrong camp on any of this either. So it all works. It's not like Severo isn't a brother or evocative of Severus. And so that's fine as a comparison. 
and it doesn't need to be what's intended necessarily versus what is pulled from the text. So Fair. that's that that's that like ability to divorce authorial intent from the textual read or the intent. So right. fun schools of thoughts and uh, literature interpretation. Agreed. So then we come to our conversation with Gaia, mother of the Cryptea, and arguably a deeper, darker force within the room. She settles ultimately that she cannot champion Diomedes' cause, despite his promise and honor. He'll make the same sacrifice that his father did, and they will side with Atlas. And it's kind of a funny way to be talking about like a dead man like this so seriously, but like at the same time, terrifying that Gaia thinks that that's the right call. Yeah. Um... The way that she presents herself within this argument, within this conversation is unsettling. It's creepy. It's sinister. And it mm-hmm. feels very different from the Gaia that we've come to know. And granted, a lot of what we've come to know, especially like the first book entirely, like first book, the Iron Gold entirely is unreliable because it is an act. Like she's acting entirely senile. Mm-hmm. But even within this book, um, she doesn't like this feels like her true self and everything else was acting frail and acting not incompetent in any way. But uh, like for whatever reason, like this feels dark and uh, secretive it 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 truly had my heart beating out of my chest this section reading her conversation yeah she's she's shedding her skin her lizard skin right in mm-hmm. a way we we've seen this exterior and this is the reality and she's being real and she's not lying she might be saying things that are bad but she's not a lying sack of shit saying things that are bad so i can tolerate it a little bit easier because at the very least it's not a hypocrite, Lysander. But yeah. Yeah. It's it's a small thing too, but Gaia siding with Atlas despite Atlas, despite killing millions, is just a lot. She says, I am cursed to be the mother of fear. My boy is so much like me. He feels too much. He is tortured, but he has his duty, and I have mine. This is what my son told me when he visited me in my cell when I was held captive by his pet warlord. It was his last revenge, you see. When we sent him as hostage to Luna, I did not see him off. I couldn't bear it. The last words I spoke to him were, do your duty. I'm sure there were some hints, if not outright textual descriptions of Atlas's relationship with his mother and how he came Mm -hmm. to be an agent of the Corps, but I didn't remember any of it. And <laughs> like, if I had there, I feel like yeah. the the only his only a monster was kill would would kill his mother would would put up alarm bell like I wouldn't have believed it so wholeheartedly <laughs> like mm. I I would have seen that as what it was a not a bluff but like a screen I guess obviously there's some truth to that comment. If, but I don't think it was pure sentimentality that kept guy alive. And yes. Yeah. Yep. I had incorrectly, I think, remembered Atlas and Gaia interacting um, in her cell. And that was what, last week, a couple weeks ago, whatever it was. I think it was two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, Alice has been gone for a while. Did it throw you off when I mentioned that on air? It absolutely did because I was like... <laughs> 
that's not here. And then I think I looked it up. And someone someone could probably pull the podcast tape and like have and probably hear the double check that happened then. <laughs> I love it when I like unknowingly <laughs> predict something fairly big. Mm-hmm. Like I, I truly just remembered them interacting. And yeah. it was just them talking about interacting i guess yeah right it's not meant to be you know the end all be all um they were just mentioning kind of that and to your point about gaia and atlas atlas's plight has been mentioned a couple of times over the course of this later series where he was sent off basically he was sent to the core as like a promised child you know like a what's what's his name i think we drew this comparison even uh he he was sent as a ward and then he we have to the Shadow Knight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we used what's his name as a comparison to Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, he said it's kind of like God the same thing. Damn it! What's his fucking yeah. Reek is is like weird. Yeah. Reek weird, is the bad broken name. name. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Why is that the only one I remember? It starts with a T, doesn't it? Uh, maybe I don't know. I thought it started with an I A. Thought so. <laughs> one moment. Theon. Yeah. Theon. Theon. Yeah. All right. Theon Greyjoy. Um. But yeah, so same same sort of bag, right? Like, yeah, kind of thing. Raised there, friends with with Lysander's parents. You know, like that was a whole thing. Then, right prior to the end of the or the beginning of the the rising, he was sent off to go deal with Yaskamani permanently for some other problems or things that he did. Basically, was told that he has to not live near the sun because he was too scary for Octavia. <laughs> <laughs> He was a spooky dude, and truth be told, he, he is a spooky dude. He is a spooky dude. I don't think it helped. I don't think his time away from the sun helped. <laughs> I, don't helped. I don't think the point no. was for him to come back. Yeah, no, definitely not. I, definitely I think not. I think she recognizes Octavia recognized that this spooky dude can't be fixed, and yeah. this puppy exile is, is the right way to go. Yeah, exile with yeah. the pretense of conquest. I don't know. I mean, an honorable existence. So Gaia rails back on Darrow for his foolhardiness regarding the continued fight for the Republic against the weight of time of the societal hierarchy, using the comparison of millennia versus a decade. She then proceeds to rattle off that she knows so much about all of these cities and levels a threat against democracy without acknowledging the obvious fact that, yeah, she knows these things and the red that she is drawing her comparison to weren't afforded the opportunity to know them either. It's so fucking telling. It, it I, like it screams ignorance at the system. It, it's exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it's this self-referencing loop. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, whatever you want to call Ouroboros. it. Yeah. Yeah. It, her passion and her diction go a very long way in making her seem right in her assessment. And that's not to say that she's wrong in, in her assessments, but she herself is a major player in why the conditions are the way they are. And Mm -hmm. that's not like, that's not unintentional. (laughs) Like they're, they're very purposeful in their, ways of keeping people in the dark and they are producing this society where the golds are the only ones that are 
capable of understanding the geopolitical like landscape so that they could lead. So like can't create a system or basically what's going on is the same as what was going on in the core. And they've proven that that can be, well, they've potentially proven that 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 can be overturned and a successful government can spring up with all colors involved. I think it'll take another generation before that uh, truly becomes fruitful much in like much to to Gaia's point that like there hasn't been enough time for the the republic to be proven to work um and i think that just means that they need more time because they're working with people that have been indoctrinated and and withheld from information that could help them lead properly so it's it's a fucked situation she's not wrong but she's part of the reason why this situation exists right she's perpetuating it it's even it's interesting i want to say it's in this chapter too that she makes the comment of like this is the first time that the like Ecateria will be meeting about war in this space as opposed to like talking about food, which is what they typically do. Which is interesting. The House of Bounty, that's the term that she uses, Ecclesia. And that is a term that is referring to a democratic body within Greco-Roman times. Like that is the meeting of the citizens of city-states. So that is the democratic moment in which you have votes. So the fact that she is also using this old language and wielding it incorrectly when it represented democracy beforehand is kind of spinning in the face of the whole idea. It's just so interesting that, like, you can't see... I mean, it is it is the problem with the Ouroboros, right? You can't see that it's your own tale that you're eating, but that is literally what she's doing in more than one context, like you've made the point mm-hmm. instead of your your discussion. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So Diomedes dismisses the guards and then wraps Pyrophoros around his neck and hands Gaia the handle. He says, gold has failed its duty, grandmother, in the core and here. When we failed to protect the people, even from our own blood, the daughters of Ares had to for us. How then are we terrorists? I have sworn to protect them, to take up their cause as my own. Tonight, when I become hegemon, I will deal with the matters before us, but I will, in time, pursue the cause of dismantling the hierarchy. Gold has failed. It's a a condensed quote of a larger page of speech that he gives that's wonderful. Frankly, again, the speech expands and doesn't stop there. He continues on in a way that honors Akari in my head more than the backstabbing that the prior existing and living Raws did in backroom dealing that both Gaia and Atlas were massive components and proponents of. I think Romulus would look back on this and Dido as well and be incredibly proud of their son and their son's decisions. Yeah, totally. I love the speech. And... Mm -hmm. He has proven to be as good with three words as he is with three paragraphs. <laughs> I was going to say three pages, but that's a little too wordy for Diomedes, I think. So <laughs> he we'll probably wouldn't paragraphs. take that yeah. uh, he, he is 
I think he the only reason why this rings true at all for Gaia is how Diomedes has presented himself his entire life. Mm-hmm. He is trading in all of his goodwill, basically. Like all his entire reputation and how he has conducted himself his entire life, I believe is the only reason why this stunt works. Yeah, I would I know I know you don't mean any will ill will by calling it a stunt, but I would say that Diomedes would not call it a stunt because he believes this to be the correct and proper way because he is standing up for what he believes in. And okay. so it's a stunt in, to me implies stunt. showmanship. There's nothing showy about this intentionally there for is, Diomedes. Though. There absolutely is. So. Putting putting a razor around your neck and giving the handle to someone else is showy. I don't, it, it but is, I don't it is think dramatic. the intent, it is, the intent is not presentation. The intent mm. is not presentation. He's not trying, he's saying you may as well fair. cut off that's, my head. And literally, fair. here is the handle to do it because I would rather you do that because I'm going to fight against you. I mean, it, like, okay. Unlike, so unlike a lot you, of other characters in which I would then. If Darrow did this, I would probably call it a little bit of a stunt. If Lysander did it, it's definitely a stunt. If Atlas did it, it's definitely a propaganda move. (laughs) Diomedes doing it is representative of reality, which is why I think stunt is wrong. Stunt implies ploying to me. Um, I I don't think it has to add something. But like, okay, what would you what would you call this action if not a stunt? I mean, he is literally putting his head in the guillotine. This is very i mean i i don't i don't but think a, it a is stunt a stunt doesn't i think have it is a, to be toothless. there's nothing performative about it which is what i think a stunt a stunt is performative intently this is not a performance this is a choice okay, of an execution I, I think, like i think I, that's I that's my disagree read. with that assessment because the performance doesn't have to be um without caution it can still be a performance with dire circumstances, mm-hmm. like with dire outcomes. Like yeah, I, I know that. But... Still, can still have negative outcomes. It doesn't have to be uh, pure showmanship. But I, I think, but I, I, I think there was there was. It is an act that backs up his words and is is visual and tangible and adds to his speech which is why i went with stunt or or yeah yeah that's why also i was saying like i don't dis i i see what you're going for i wouldn't call it a stunt because i think that stunt implies something different definition of stunt in action displaying spectacular skill or daring or uh something unusual done to attract attention and i don't think he's i think think he's attracting attention he I don't is. think so at all. He's he's drawing he's drawing mortal attention to his action. He is Yeah, maybe it doesn't quite perfectly fit. Yeah. I, I don't think so in this case. If it, it again, if it were Darrow, if it were Cassius, if it were Lysander, I would a hundred percent be on your page and I could see bending that definition. It is literally just the fact that it is Diomedes in the fact that I think it is so goddamn literal because he is a literal person. Yep. I mean He's the definition of he is uh, he is never this explicit, but he does kind of feel like Drax with like nothing goes over my head kind of level. 
from Guardians of the Galaxy, I realize that sometimes I say references and you either don't remember it or don't know. But Drax. I, I know that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just did sometimes I have to explain <laughs> myself. But yeah. So that's my impression of Diomedes comparatively is this is a very literal cut my head off because I'm not doing what you want. Mm-hmm. But I, I agree. I just. Yeah. Yeah. Could have yeah, used yeah. a different Which word, is, I guess, but I don't know what word that would have been. Yeah. I don't know. Performance also wasn't the right word because I looked at that definition. And it's not it because that's staging. So. Yeah. If you've got the right is, term, send it in. I mean, at he's any of hanging himself. We'll talk about, later. you know, in this moment, Gaia kind of breaks understanding what her grandson is to stand for. And in some way that he is right he pulls her back with a punchy word and punchy phrase as he is want to do, as we have found out, and says, your duty is not silence. Your duty is to use your voice. Enables her, this woman of whom has had to play back card games for most of her life in existence. We've known her to do so since we met her in Iron Gold. Now she's being told to be out front, to be the matriarch that she should be. And... You can't help but feel a little bit empowered for the the old lady and like I mean, especially her take on like i need to live for you what comes next you know i'm the dusk you are the dawn i feel like her duty is also counterintelligence general kgb-esque operations torture true a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other heinous shit but you could you could probably distill it down to using your voice if you really wanted to <laughs> <laughs> yeah you probably could you probably could <laughs> with that yeah there's there's the final moment as i had mentioned before i am the dusk now you're the dawn i have lived i've had my say i will help you have yours and that's just a nice admittance full circle with gaia realizing that this is kind of her end and what she should do because that's what's right after diomedes impassioned presentation and speech yeah, this put a smile on my face. It really did. I'm hearing her say that. I, I didn't quite believe it until mm-hmm. a little bit later, which we'll get into. But I appreciated that she seemed to recognize, like, even if she didn't ultimately follow through with it, she does. But I didn't believe she would, but even if she didn't, mm-hmm. she at least recognizes what he's talking about and um, has proven to understand. Yeah. I'm glad she she follows through with it later on, but um, I didn't quite believe that would be the case when I first read this. Yes, totally. I definitely agree with you. I was definitely bringing in kind of the same suite of questions as it were, to this this encounter. Excellent. So that gets us to chapter 86, Darrow, Nival Knight. Right off the bat in the chapter, we can feel Darrow's anxiety mounting with Cassius still missing, and part of me wonders genuinely about what he was hoping would be in the box, since he also doesn't mention Lysander striding beside him on his way in. That's a good point. I hadn't considered that. I'm sure he would have been perfectly okay with Lysander's ugly mug looking up at him from a box. Yeah, I I feel like the answer is the ideal case is Atlas, but if it's not, I don't think that Lysander wouldn't be a good head to have. 
think that it would out. function in some ways because the puppet would be gone. Right. Even if the puppet master is still out there. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously the intent is to have Atlas's head here in the moment, but that's that's not the case. I mean um, one box with two heads is not unheard of, right? Not unheard of, but like, like I mean, I've gotten there's I've gotten, no seven sequel, you know? I've gotten boxes with both sweatpants and t shirts in them as gifts. Super the same. Super the same. Just two heads Definitely. side by side or like folded and stacked on top of each other. Could have worked. Never know what's in a box. Never know what's in the box. <laughs> <laughs> box. Yeah. What's in the box? That's what I was saying about like a seven two. Like there's no seven sequel. You know what I mean? And what? Two heads and two boxes. I, I believe it's called eight. And that's how the story starts. No, absolutely <laughs> not. It's called seven two. <laughs> Eventually, we will get to 7-Eleven, and it will take place in the gas station. Perfect. Yeah. But Diomedes has done a great job up until this point, leading with the truth in a way that almost no one else has in this entire fucking universe so far. He gives Darrow the honor of presenting first, since Lysander is late. Darrow partakes in all the mystery and rituals of the Rim before approaching the Moon Lords on the dais. He reveals the head of Fa, and the room slams their staffs into the ground in a great uproar for him in this sort of triumphant moment for themselves. He continues and apologizes for what he did to the docks and to these people, of which no one replies. But Diomedes earns the biggest, loudest uproar as he says that they will restore their military alliance with the Rising. In a shocking turn, it is Gaia of whom quiets them. This is where she... Earned some respect, or at least soothed some distrust from me. Yeah, the fears. Yeah, I appreciate all the traditions of the Rim throughout this. Like, I, I really, I really do. I find them interesting. I find them really, really cool. Mm-hmm. I like that the fact that bread is shared is something sacred and something that was pointed to as this mundane thing that. Uh, invalidated any of their alliance before this like and that being shared now rectifies that like it's all so interesting and intricate and it's not nonsensical but it's trivial (laughs) to a certain degree and you wouldn't think that it would hold so much weight but it does it's really cool yeah absolutely it's it is an excellent moment that lends itself to a lot of appreciation for Gaia, but also just for the Rim Lords in general. And we've talked a lot previously in prior books about like, I want to see more Rim practices. I want to see more of this and that. And this is kind of cool to now see the upper echelon and what that kind of looks and feels like. It's also a great juxtaposition against the beginning of the book with the 100, which includes this, uh, the, uh, the Rim Dominion with the Society Remnant and sort of their political beats and seeing how those play out similarly but also differently Mm -hmm. because everyone in the rim listens and no one's sitting there and like you know putting up a putting up a voting stink yeah it's it's about a unified front they have uh seemingly they they truly take their position to heart and uh, their importance to heart I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what to say beyond that. Like it, it, it's it's refreshing coming off of our political landscape and how of course uh meaningless 
their like each individual representative's words are, I guess. Contribute. Yeah. So it's nice to see that there's actually some, I don't know, teeth. Yeah. In some ways, Gaia is like a majority whip, right? You know, kind of kind of filling that role. But, you know, when everyone's on the same side, who are you whipping into into order? You're just making sure that order is maintained, more or less. Right. So, but the fact that they respect that authority, I think, is is excellent. Uh, a handful of the Moon Lords also ask quiet questions to which Diomedes soothes them with relative ease over the course of answering those questions with them. Lysander is to come with the puppet master's head in a box. Darrow is to be forgiven for what he did, even if they keep the moon from the hands of Atalantia. Vengeance against the Volker Oscomani is treating a symptom, not the disease. Those are all kind of shorthand for the, the questions that he's dealing with and the answers that he gives in that moment. Yeah. It's upsetting for me to know what's happened. Like to, to be in this situation where we understand what's happened. And to still have to read this very well done anxiety spiral in Darrow's perspective. Hurts. It's so well done. It's so stressful. It's like it's very come, stressful. Come on. It's painful every time that Cassius is mentioned. It's it's truly ah, God it feels so real. The the fact that we know that Cassius is dead, we know it's transpired, we know that Lysander isn't going to sh- show up, adds to this dramatic irony and this tension for us of like, well, when's the shoe going to drop, right? When's this going to come back? Because we know that he's not showing up. We know that Cassius isn't coming in with that head. We know that none of this is going to go the way that it was planned. And that's a tough thing to sit through from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Then... Tight beam comes in from the Lightbringer from Lysander. Motherfucker. Motherfucker indeed. Chapter 87, Darrow, Cassus Belly. It is, I think, no small thing that this chapter is titled Cassus Belly, which generally means provoking or justification of war, in which the death of Cassius or what is to come in the chapter are both provocations for the two sides occupying this room. No small thing either that the root of Cassius's name is Cassus, after all, and as such, he has been a part of the provocation of the conflict in most of the novels. I absolutely laughed out loud when I saw the title of this chapter, <laughs> not in a happy way. It was a, you know, a fuck you laugh, but a laugh nonetheless. <laughs> a fuck you laugh to, to Pierce or to Lysander to or the to- book in general, to, I think just to, yeah. the, to the situation and to my emotional state. Your plight, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's fair. It is definitely quite, quite a chapter and chapter header- and so starts another Lys- of Lysander's terrible lies, but also I think finally seeing a real Lysander free of all the strings. He bears the wounds of his conflict with Ronan and Atlas and claims that Darrow sent an assassin, Cassius, after him. I'm sick with grief and disgusted you would send a man after me whom I once considered a brother. Look on what you've done. At which point Cassius drops into frame, noose tied around his neck, hanging limp from the rafters. He's naked and brutalized from his fight and the wounds Lysander inflicted even after he died. Cassius is dead and Darrow knows it. His first gold friend, gone. This whole charade feels uh, rushed, I guess. 
for whatever reason. I don't I don't know the right way to put it. Uh, it makes it's it clear to me. It is yeah. just justification, you know? Yeah, it's it's justification, but it also just feels like more more proof to me or proof in the direction of he didn't intend for Cassius to die here uh, or didn't want Cassius to die here. So we didn't have that sort of plan super well. Con- I don't know. Maybe it works to his advantage, but this this whole assassin claim feels kind of immature and half-baked in this moment. It does as though as though everyone else in the room isn't going to know that that's a lie. And that's kind of the way that a lot of the rest of this goes, right? Is that it's just a series of lies. And so, yeah, it does feel like it from Lysander's perspective, it is underplanned. And we were giving him all the credit in the world as this sort of, you know, quote, new Atlas quote, or like as though he was inheriting that. But it's just that he didn't think like him. Not not that he was. I know. I was was kind of leaning into it because I knew that it falls apart even relatively quickly here. But like, yeah, I, I think that this is also where it proves that I think to some degree he didn't necessarily have to kill Cassius to like do this either. He could just declare war because they're there together and he knows that. And that's like another another thing. It's just Cassius is sort of the the wound to inflict on Darrow, I think, most of all, or maybe for the hollow tapes in the future. I'm not I'm not sure which it is. Yeah, I'm um, sure it's but on this call it's all alive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, I'm really glad now at this point that we split this because I I feel more positive after sort of the <laughs> the drain that was yesterday, and I feel like I can talk about this a little bit better. But we we then get to that panicked internal monologue that Darrow gives here that almost hurts as much as the death of Cassius does to begin with. He says, "This is a nightmare. I'll wake up in my bunk on the Archie and find him yawning in the cockpit. I cover my mouth to stop myself from crying out in pain. Why did he go?" Why did he have to go? Why didn't he just wait for me on his ship? It's such a waste. I just got him back. I can't think of anything but him smiling on the Archimedes when I told him we were brothers and he agreed and how he just then sat there in such contentment, so safe with me. Why did he go? I don't want to be here. I want to be home with Virginia's arms around me or back with him in the cockpit. We should have stayed on Europa. We should have fought. Dying at his side would have been better than this. I'd trade him for all the ships, all these moon lords. He was worth them all put together. This is fucking devastating. Just the the spiral, the the raw emotion that comes through here is is unlike anything we've seen from Darrow. I think we've seen we've seen him be emotional. We've seen him be raw in general, but this takes it to another level. In like even even other friends that have died, he hasn't been this broken. It's really yeah. tough, really tough to read. I mean, even think about like the death of Alexander. He is like a raw nerve at that point, but it's transferred into rage, and this is instead crumbling um, to some degree. Mm-hmm. And that's that's just a very different kind of sentiment. I, I really appreciate, as far as Pierce's writing goes here, the run-on sentences with all the ands and sort of all of these, like, just short, disjointed clauses where it does, <clears throat> unlike a lot of the rest of this writing that is in first person, that doesn't feel like it's a journal log entry or anything like that, this feels as though it is just a, oh my god, what's it called? Like a... 
flow of consciousness. Like there this is go. just absolutely just a spewing of 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 where he's at in the moment, which is very different. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if we talked about this on air or just before we started recording yesterday, but I believe this was the moment you were talking about that Pierce Brown referenced in the Hail Reaper interview that you listened to. No, it's no. the later one at the very end. It's the one at the very end. Okay. Um, this is where my mind where, goes as far as like what got me the most emotional was seeing Darrow in this mm. state and this raw like flow of consciousness like you mentioned. So I figured that might be what a, what he was talking about because he'd have to be in that state of mind as well. I think it's also like mourning what was is is a part of it. I'm sure that this all contributes. And to be honest, these chapters by and large blur together because you're still blubbering. I was literally blubbering over the death of Cassius still, you know, internally in that. That pains a lot. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Carries us through to the end. Yeah, what a what a man. How brutal. <laughs> also, fuck you, Lysander, for putting him <laughs> on the end of a rope. How fucking dare you? Mm. Like. Even if it's for imagery and for and for shock, you know, that man gave more to you. Uh, it's just so it's, it's and I, I get that it's all a fucking act, but it is so disgraceful. Yeah, Ugh, man. I think showing yeah. him on camera in general was distasteful. It had to happen. I think he would have had to if he was going to claim yeah. it regardless, yeah. but to do so in such a shocking manner. It, I mean, it's just especially awful because he escaped the gallows on the Morningstar previously, right? Yeah. And now he's hanging on the ship that he just barely escaped from in the last third book. He also know? escaped the gallows earlier this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that that full circle to me, I think, is one of the harshest to consider with Cassius is like... He 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 escaped the rope just narrowly when he was abducted for crimes that he owned up to committing. And, and Darrow even, you know, harkens back to that, talking about that long ago when we were with Athena. But then to then see Lysander do to him what he had avoided. I don't know. I, I hate it. Mm-hmm. His friends had gotten him out of. Yeah. Fuck you. But then Lysander talks down both surviving members of House Rob, besmirching their worth and calling them liars about Atlas and leaving him out there as the boogeyman despite his demise. Lysander ends with a simple premise. Surrender Darrow and the rest of the Moon Lords will keep their rim and Ra's stranglehold on the rim will be over. So like we mentioned, or like I mentioned, that Cassius reveal and assassin plot felt hasty and immature. This part feels solid from him. He he knows exactly what corner he has everybody in. Doesn't expect them to just say no, but he he's applying pressure the way that he should be applying pressure conventionally when dealing with Corgolds. Yes. Yeah. Right. I I wonder if they had given in, if they if he would have bombarded the garter anyway i'm curious like if he would have held his stayed true to his word if they had turned darrow in i i i don't know i don't know about that 
I think I knew I think he knew that they wouldn't to begin with. So I, I'm a firm believer that I think that this was kind of written on the wall is that he knew that they wouldn't because Atlas, I mean, because Diomedes wouldn't betray that sort of honor. And he knows that Lysander was the one who betrayed them at this point. Right. So Diomedes is never going to say yes. Guy is alive and knows. <clears throat> yeah. As well. And Diomedes is the hegemon, you know, so like he's the one who needs to be swayed. Yeah. And they pretty much, they respect that pretty cleanly. Yeah. So I, I don't think so. To to kind of point to some of the things that you did point to here, though, or that we kind of talk about as as it surrounds this, we eventually know that we know that Atlas is dead, right? So the other side of this and this contingent then is also given the information that Atlas is dead. Getting back to something that we talked about in the other episode, or maybe in this episode, this is where this gets confusing in our prior recording. <laughs> Last night. <laughs> Last night. Uh <laughs> we um, kind of had had talked a little bit about this idea of why is he withholding that secret potentially? And then we kind of put off, you know, like I think finishing kind of the thought here. He's he's OK with the Republic knowing, which is weird, but he tells them anyway, probably to give Cassius some last honor. I'm sure that's predominantly what it is via Pytha because Pytha would know and would kind of have an understanding there. We'll get more to Pytha in a minute here. But because he knows that this hologram is going to be replayed over and over and over again within the society, I think that's why he keeps Atlas out there as the boogeyman to mm. like be the boogeyman over Atalantia, right? I think, you know, because he's perpetuating that lie on that side of the fence because that's what this footage is mostly going to be used for. But that, this creates such a weird dynamic across the solar system. It does. <laughs> it, it creates a very strange. There, there are a lot of problems if, um, if any intelligence is like found on the side of the society, you know. Yeah. Right. Makes for a really strange dynamic. It it's a weird choice on Lysander's part. I mean, I can see it because he want it's. It's the one thing that he can say, well, I have your fear knight right over Atalantia, and that might help him out to some degree. And she'll be much more afraid of Atlas than she ever would be of Lysander. Yeah, I guess he doesn't need this to maintain for that long. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If things are in motion, they're going to go quick. (laughs) Yeah. Plus the end of... What what feels like the end of Atlas's plan is now in his hand anyway. So like Atlas resolved and like even what he was going to be doing in the future, it seems like is done and taken care of. And this is all dependent on if who was killed is actually Atlas, you know? Correct. Like <laughs> like we kind of talked just briefly about in that other episode. The mind was there, though. <laughs> It'd be hard for yeah. anyone to yeah. think the same way that Atlas does. If not, look like him. Yeah, unless he fucking cloned himself, which we know is a thing. That's true. <laughs> if anyone would do it. Yeah. Plus, okay. Again, we could talk about the Atlas thing forever. And I don't want to spin on this too much. But why couldn't he open Orpheus? You know what I mean? Why wasn't he able to as a descendant of Ra? You know, it says that it requires a Ra to open the door. He is a Ra. Hmm. Was he not there? What? No, he goes there. You know what I mean? 
this is that five percent of me that is, is that is lingering. I need I need to go back and look at it in order to like have yeah. a good answer there. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about it in the wrap up or one of them. But if he's cloned, <laughs> it's still it, he's still raw. Maybe it's not. Maybe like a cloned DNA isn't enough versus like a real DNA. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he's fucked too. It, it on the other side of that. Maybe he's fucked too much with his body to like count to some degree because he does tear his skin off all the time and wear other skin. So yeah, maybe Atlas was someone else entirely and he wasn't a raw at all. Or, or he was, he used to once adopted of of some sort. No, I don't think so. All I mean is like literally. Yeah. He's he's Gaia's son, but that doesn't necessarily cover claims. I don't know. Yeah. He's like, this is the only character that can make me spin in circles like you do with every character. <laughs> it's not the only character that will make me spin in circles. I will find no, no, right. shit to to worry about. What's that about Deanna again? Everywhere. Oh, she's <laughs> she's a big bad man. Yeah, yeah. She's she's coming. All right. Anyway, we're going to have to talk a lot more about Atlas um, in, in the coming yeah, she she might be Atlas. I don't know. <laughs> Why else would you crush the symbol of the oppressor and then put it in everyone's pocket if it wasn't a bomb? She broke the gallows, you know. Okay, so Diomedes declines the offer as do the remaining Rim Lords, and Lysander responds in kind, saying, "You say the slave king has saved you. Very well. Let the slave king feed you." And Darrow seconds later thinks. None of them understand that Lysander was covering his ass before committing a war crime as the particle cannons are unleashed on Demeter's garden. The building they are in is bombed and begins to shatter, as does decorum for just a second before it's reinstated very quickly, mm-hmm. which is pretty neat of the rim. Yep. That <laughs> great point about the I had forgotten about this quote, the covering his ass part. Also, he, he intended we're counting to bomb war it crimes no now. What. Yeah. Hmm? Also, we're counting war crimes now, Darrow. <laughs> I mean, he knows that he committed a war crime. A couple. <laughs> but yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. It is truthfully, though, not to downplay what obviously actually happens here, because this is effectively genocide um, in the long run, you know, or at least attempted. Yeah, right. Yeah. Fucking horrible. Mm -hmm. It is. It is horrible. So everything begins to crumble and Darrow literally holds up a pillar and begins to falter when others come to his aid. Others who he has wronged in in this very room and in lives past and in decades and wars long in the rear view here. And I, I just I love I love the little scene that that happens here they stand rightly to save all those here holding up this pillar i mean it's not it it's just like kind of a cool movie scene where like they all get together and they're (laughs) holding up the pillar and they're getting all the people out and it's it's great especially because it does show that there is unity and that life genuinely matters to all of them and they're not so precocious to to save themselves unlike all of the core goals so it yields a very different kind of picture and at that i think Obviously, the Rim Lords are beholden to the hegemon. Mm-hmm. They like they will they would have acted the way that they did, regardless. But I think seeing Darrow take initiative and hold up this pillar will at least lend some credit uh, 
in their eyes for Darrow, mm-hmm. hopefully, and may- maybe something. May- I mean, I don't know. Hard to say what's going to happen after this, but I I feel like he probably solidified some alliances in this act. Yeah, I mean, as as small as it was, I think that it didn't only solidify. It, it was it was a two way street of solidifying alliances. I think by and large, it was them agreeing to help Darrow at the same time as Darrow helping them partially because he jumped first, but right. Ultimately it it does give me just like the slightest waft of the dude. The right thing is the rim way, even at the top. So that's Mm. good. I like that. I like the rim Lords quite a bit. Yeah. I hate that. I I refer to them as the rim Lords so much, but they are though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess my point is they would have acted this way. They would have held yeah. the pillar for Darrow regardless because that's the right right thing to do. But seeing him do the same thing puts them on more level ground. Yeah, absolutely. They all like are, are taking off basically for a bunker and they make it there. And once they make it there, there's this moment of, okay, there are more people to save on the surface. And it's that moment that Guy, all the all the infirm Moon Lords are supposed to go, like, basically be retired. But Gaia says, I can't lift anything, but I'm a damn good pilot or something to that effect. <laughs> and to have to have her carried out is, I think, great for this despicable woman. <laughs> <laughs> she is kind of a piece of shit. Yeah, but it was. But there's hope. There's, it was there's, really nice to end the chapter this way. You know, it it was hard. In many ways, she's redeeming herself actively. She so, is. I mean, in in a lot of those sort of choices and in submitting to Diomedes and everything that's happening, it's progress. So, mm-hmm. take progress. We'll take it. Guy, you're on thin ice, but your cold heart yeah. is making that ice a little bit thicker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, with that, we get into chapter 88, Lysander, the Sack of Demeter. So we return to our final Lysander chapter of Lightbringer, and he is harvesting the Garter of Demeter so as to use as science in the core and ensure that it doesn't die to help perpetuate life eventually in the Rim again, as well as help other planets flourish and some of the people of whom have backed him to give them the financial backing that he needs, but also the future and industry that they might need to be new successful families in the scummiest way. To kind of give a quick rundown of the different things, Lucilla is to be left in charge of that whole process. We learned that Demetrius was shot in the head, executed by one of Kyber's men. Good and fucking. Then palaces around, of course, is the Bologna chick and kind of hitting on him a little bit. So it seems like there's definitely something there. That's just kind of there. As mentioned, when I was writing this like little bit, I really just summarized it as like bullet points and because my soul was so drained <laughs> by writing. I tried to write because I knew that this was going to happen. I tried to do everything and then do the hanger last, but I couldn't do the sack of Demeter because I was like, it feels dishonest to not be like in the same emotional state that Lysander is. Mm-hmm. So I decided to do those in order, but fuck. <laughs> Very soul draining. Yeah, I mean, reasonable. And uh, for that reason, I am also glad that we're we're not taking this. We're not recording this the same day that we recorded Anger 17B. Mm-hmm. But one thing that you didn't mention for 
Lucilla being left in charge, the title of Arch Grower, which I really, mm-hmm. really like. It's weird, but I like it. Yeah. Yeah, Arch Arch Grower is an odd one, and it is, like, immediately given, like, capitalization, which is interesting. But, uh, I mean, if he's to be a new type of leader, you know, he's going to give out whatever the fuck titles he wants, obviously. The pieces of shit like Scabo, you know? Strabo. Strabo. I don't care. Strawberry. It is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The only way I remember it. Strabo got his dick cut off. Strabo the dickless dead guy yeah deserved earned uh continuing on though because again my brain when i was writing these well palace is being kind of nice and it seems like lysander is gonna have a good place in the society and will do fine now that he's proved himself okay cool that's it (laughs) yeah fine (laughs) cool all right (laughs) (laughs) you were not having lysander at all when you were writing these notes understandably totally and like the smallest peek behind the curtain. Generally, I don't read things necessarily fully verbatim. And I'm like obviously cleaning things up and adding things in as we go and whatever. And like none of this is that scripted. But th- that one I had to read directly from the page just because <laughs> it's too. I was not having a good time. <laughs> um, I'm just going to bring up because uh, I feel like my job at this point is to try to avoid all the the harsh feelings on Lysander and maybe point out something good that he's doing in a bad way. Like he's <laughs> he's sacking Demeter. But turning the waste of Ladon into a luscious garden is a great fucking idea. Like that that's a yeah. really good idea. So at least it's something something useful coming out of this horror. Isn't there a reason that the Ladon is the Ladon, though? Isn't it like a consequence of the constant terraforming that they couldn't get like anything to work there? So it also feels kind of maybe I don't remember that part. I'm pretty sure that's a part of it. But regardless, uh, I mean, okay, let's just say it works because we'll give Lysander the smallest ounce of credit. Yeah, I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) This this is a this is a good this is a good move. And if anywhere needs, you know, something regardless of it being society or republic, it's mercury because they have the toughest time of any of the i mean venus is a tough time too but you know of the two small planets on the inside those are they're bad ones those they're are bad tough ones. times those ones are uh, feeling it yeah yeah they've felt the weight of this war rather heavily i'm sure earth obviously isn't in a great place either at this point so when is that. it in a good place yeah it's not in a good place good now <laughs> so we then move to cicero and the way this man breaks at the harvesting of these trees and then the growers spinning on him in this whole story reminds me of that bit of cassius that i see on him that bit of the chin and i'm sure it's the same reason that lysander keeps him around At, at this point in the book i feel like i no longer have to make the immediate point but i do feel like the reason that lysander puts up with him is because he sees so much of cassius in him and I mean, he but likes he's that also, type of person. There's that. That's true. I think that's why he's so personally close to him. But I think he would put mm-hmm. up with him regardless, based on his name. Oh yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Good point. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Gotta get those ships. Yeah, I mean, important. But the story of the growers, man. I mean, that's that's again where I also think that he has more of that like 
Roker Tactus that we talked about a little bit earlier where he could turn pretty simply and pretty easily because he is less attached to the hierarchy immediately and wants people to be treated well. And he's even thinking, I think in this moment, he's even thinking about sort of the story of being shepherds when he's getting spit on like this and sort of like what Lysander is preaching to some degree. And I think we definitely need to consider that as we think about Cicero in the next book. That's a great point. I would love to focus on him more and maybe maybe see something good come out of him. Yeah. Or maybe he'll die and that's just sort of the unfortunate reality is he because but of where he threw his cards in, you know? If he dies for standing up for something that would have turned him in other circumstances, mm-hmm. I'm happy with that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I think I'm more apt to believe in this again, getting into theories that I should really just keep quiet. I'm more apt to believe that like Lysander will kill him in some way, shape, or form than he will get himself killed or something else. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 For the cause. No doubt. So, He'll die at Lysander's hands if he dies. I I feel like it. And even if it's indirect of like sending him into a situation where he knows he's gonna die. Yeah. Okay. So moving on from Cicero and the growers. Continuing kind of down that that thought path, Lysander then wields Atlas's logic to explain what they were doing here, making a big enough wound to change history as this will be the final year of the war. And as they walk away, the growers burn behind them. Lysander walks ever forward and Cicero looks back. Yeah, that's I mean. More solid evidence that he's got. At least an OK head on his shoulders, he's still. Yeah, he's still a core gold. In in cahoots still on the wrong side of the war. Yep. Yeah, but mm-hmm. at least there's something redeeming. There. Yeah. I mean, if you yeah. just talking about the situation itself for a second, <laughs> if you remove the horrors and the waste of human life and that are like a result of these actions, which you can't because they're the point. Um his logic's sound. He's making very good strategic decisions for his goal. It's a horrible mm-hmm. fucking goal. Right. But he's doing it well. Like He's making well-planned moves. Yeah. I mean, again, we're talking about like wielding Atlas's logic specifically as he hearkens to this person of like make a big enough wound. Right. And I think that at the very least, while he is not the planner that Atlas is, he has been shaped by this experience and now that the strings are cut in every conceivable way it feels it's it's tough to say what's going to happen i mean i feel like the first thing we'll end up seeing is is the rebellion between the two which side of the society remnant are you on and then the the pressing from there of whoever whoever wins that fight yeah how many fucking factions are going to be in this war <laughs> it i mean I think that's the trouble of gold, right? Is they keep fracturing over and over and over again because they functionally have different beliefs and what held them together was a quiet piece. I feel like it's not just golds, though. It's not just the society remnant. Oh, yeah. There, 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 yeah. there the are folk. factions. Right. Yeah, Dana. there's the Volk. There's the daughters. The daughters at odds with the, Repu- the Republic in general. The Republic itself isn't that yeah we haven't even like, talked about the vox populi this book yeah exactly um, at all like yeah there's a lot there's, there's a lot of cracks in both of these spheres and now the rim and where they're going to end up because yeah. i can't imagine they just get folded into the republic either they're going to be separate mm-hmm. but 
the tenuous yeah, friendship, Luna, maybe. Luna is basically controlled by a like the Vox Populi, but also as such, Abominadrius's faction, which yeah. is the the what Bone Riders, not the Bone Riders, well, but no, 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 the Bone Riders are a part of it. But uh, what's the the hand? Um, the Red Hand, the Duke of Hands, uh, Red, not the Red no. Hand. The Duke of Hands is a part of the Syndicate. The Syndicate. syndicate. That's yep. You know, all of these terms, all of these groups, yeah. a couple families, like two or three families. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right it's it's a whole lot yeah yeah man there's a lot there so yeah the factions just keep spiraling and there's more and more and more to juggle mm-hmm. so we then come to pytha and to me this is the most stinging part of lysander's chapter because i i feel for pytha and it becomes so clear how lysander has changed in this moment like he is fully shifted from from a being that we used to have some understanding to to a creature that we definitely get but no longer resembles the sort of shapeless blob that was lysander before of like his potential or possibility he is now set on a path and this is a very different moment yeah we'll talk about the corpse in a second but anything on that i mean i'm happy that lysander decided to let pytha go i know it's very clearly self-interest at mm-hmm. least to a certain degree but i can't help but hold out a little bit of hope that there may be like a glimmer of the sweet boy that pytha helped ride like raise allowing her to live yeah i, I think that's him sending away the last part of himself right like that's him it's fair being okay with you know it's i think it's a coping mechanism but also like a separation mm-hmm Please let it bite him in the ass. Right, right. So th- to that point, she leaves with the Archimedes and Cassius's corpse, promising to kill Lysander if she ever sees him again. He chooses to give the body over to the Republic because that is who he chose, he being Cassius, chose in the end. She tells him the truth about Atlas and his death as well. Of course, we've talked about sort of the impacts there. Up a man, setting him off with Cassius's body. I'm wary. I'm wary of that a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. There are, we know pretty, pretty well established. There are tracking mechanisms that can be implemented. I don't know if you can do that on a body, like a radiation trail that can bring them right to like an the, isotope. Yeah. Yeah. It could be a, tra- it could be booby trapped in some way. I, I don't know what's happening here, but this, deprives Julia of any sort of interaction with her son's body. So I don't know. Yeah. This is a controversial move. Totally. I think, but I I think strategic, I I still think it's strategic. I don't think this is out of reverence for the dead or well wishes for Cassius at all. Yeah. You're probably right. I mean, something to do with the casket, although I think that they cleaned it right. And they also cleaned the helm searched it thoroughly and didn't find any trackers on it specifically when we get to when we get to the casket in darrow's perspective but Mm -hmm. still but at the very least it's a political move the body itself could be i don't know yeah i don't know this is after he like looks at eyed me like could he have this is could he not quite after he looks at eyed me oh really interesting okay i see what you're saying no, she leaves before that. 
find me is the end of the chapter. You're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah. That'd be terrifying at that point. If, if Cassius that. was the delivery mechanism. Thankfully, they just shoot it into the sun. Maybe. I don't know. We don't actually know that. I'm curious on whether or not Cassius has a sun death. Um, I'm sure that will probably, realistically, if I had to make a bet on what the next book is going to open with, it is the funeral of Cassius. Um, yeah, probably. Um, but Or pretty that- quickly in the opening. I feel like that would happen with the rest of the Republic. Like it'd be a an Olympic it night could. funeral, but it's yeah, probably it's, safer it, to to do it now before they travel. You're right. I I just for some reason it just it it makes me think that that's sort of the plan would be to start off with something like that because yeah. I as a as a crafter of stories, the way that the way that I think about it is it reminds you immediately of the tragedy. Right. And so yeah. that's a good starting point to be mad at Lysander for what's about to happen for the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. But um, that's so like be, it's, it's a good initiating. It could be just in part one. You know, it could be in part one. It could be prologue. right away. And he's already traveled home in the interim. Like, yeah, there are ways that could happen. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see exactly how that happens. Again, I'm supposing a lot in the end here, but mm-hmm. a lot more than I intended. So Kyber gets appointed as ducks, which is interesting, of course, here. There are a lot of golds apparently vying after it, and I'm sure there were, and I'm sure they're all pieces of shit. But Kyber is our little gray who could, and so she gets it because he likes to keep the grays close, but only the good ones now. Is she a gray? Like, she's still she's still confused. She's me. a gray. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm excited um, to dig deeper into what exactly she is with with all her augments and abilities. So I, I think that the only piece of information that Pierce gave from that little interview that was kind of book seven adjacent is just a little bit. And he said it was like not I believe that the question was like something that probably won't make it into the book, but like is is character related. And they leaned in on Kyber. A little bit and basically what Pierce said is like one of the big differences between like Kyber and Roan is the sort of grays that are like Kyber are grays that are you know we talk about the kennel with Roan and like those hundred soldiers that are trained super closely Kyber is isolated instead and so the type of gray that Kyber is is basically like a stray dog wherein everyone else is is a pack yeah and so she is very obedient to the one person and so that's sort of the the like overarching big difference but not anything plot driven but just like kind of a general that's you know, fair vibe that's really cool <laughs> yeah i like that yeah he, i think it's a comparison kept the dog analogy though <laughs> i yeah, mean it makes I, sense I, to i i may have just added that but i'm not 100 percent certain to like add into it but he definitely mentioned the kennel thing he might have said the stray dog thing too i don't i'm not can't recall i watched it like two weeks ago at this point but or like a week ago whatever at some point recently sometime yeah the other component that he was talking about oh it was a cut scene so apparently there was a scene in which originally close to where the play was in the very beginning of the book where like kyber was looking on but atlas was the only one who noticed and so he just like looks up and then looks back and like it recognizes that kyber's there even though no one else does including lysander mm. just to show like how perpetually aware atlas is of things that's interesting but cut yeah on the on the cutting room floor hmm kind of interesting 
or like yeah. he addressed Kyber, I think, or something like that. It was it's a really good interview, They're, and of course, our, yeah. our friends did a great job with that. I'm but, excited to listen to it. Yeah, definitely one that I would recommend. As far as that goes, now that so. I can, now that you can, you can so much content and that I'm gonna feel. <laughs> Me too, man. I've leashed myself back from like watching any of the interviews for that reason outside of the one that I saw in person and then the one that I was a part of the recording of and then this one. So like, I guess that's three more than you have, but still. (laughs) Right. So then we end our perspective, our moment, our journey with Lysander for this book with him and the itemy in his hands. He opens the bag and finds the cubes with all their different sigils in it sigils i've been saying sigils for some reason sigils and he's left to ponder what the original Lightbringer would do if he were in his position nothing good i'm sure <laughs> he wouldn't there's a reason why it was hidden from him i think mm-hmm. right yeah 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 i mean there definitely was a reason that it was hidden from him and it's it's brute that he is left with this genocidal weapon and is contemplating genocide at the very end here, which is why everyone was so mad at Lysander online mm-hmm. <laughs> beyond just killing Cassius, which was bad. Yeah. He committed yeah. an act of near genocide and then is also contemplating actively two genocides of full color extermination. Just on one planet, yeah. though. Just on one Maybe. Sphere. I don't know. He didn't he didn't say that. Uh that's he how just it was said described which one to use initially. first. He just well, yeah, no, it's one sphere at a time. <laughs> like yeah. he can only use it on one planet at a time. I d I don't think it's gonna end with the with just Mars as an example. I mean <sighs> yeah. yeah. I don't know. Like Luna's going to get it. I'd be shocked if Luna didn't get it first. Yeah, I'd be curious if these are like if each of these cubes can be used multiple times or if he's got one shot per color per sphere. I'm sure. I'm sure they can be used multiple times. It's a my assumption is that it's a genetic code. Right. And so it just targets the disease to the code. So, yeah, the bioweapon. Scary shit. Mm -hmm. Horrible shit. Yep. All right, well, PJ, that brings us to our final chapter, unless you wanted to talk about the dedication. I <laughs> just kidding. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what the dedication was talking about. This so. is the dumbest joke I've come up with in a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, let's get into chapter 89 here, The Only Path. Pax loving snow globes as we start this chapter and Dara bring them home is just sort of a a lovely thing, right? It's described very, you know, like from a removed perspective of where you don't even really pick up exactly what it is. But I particularly appreciate this in a way that I, I don't think is easy to grasp or not easy to grasp, but is is far deeper. And I think that part of the reason that Pax loves these things is because they're frozen in time to him. And so much of his life is like that. It's frozen in time. Recalling things and remembering moments much the same way. He has to hold on to those memories with his dad and his mom together and all of those different things. So to for him, for these snow globes to be so important is, I mean, it makes logical sense, but it's also kind of 
heartbreaking in a yeah. good way. It's it's so sad, but a great point. I yeah. I didn't pick up on it that way, but I, yeah, that makes sense to me. It's subtle. Yeah. I think it just speaks to packs and, and the importance of mementos and these different things. And I mean, even with the little bit that we know, like he always just wants to spend time with, you know, his dad in his garage. And that's also the way that Darrow thinks about it is these frozen moments, right? Of him in the garage, of like wishing that he could be there for all of these different things. So mm-hmm. for the pair of them, it feels like it's a communion, their sort of reverence for those things. Yeah. It's like, imagine. Daryl getting back and being so excited to just share a bike ride with Pax. And Pax is like, I haven't cared about bikes in the last, like, five years. Yeah, that's probably what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Maybe. It, might, might, it might not be. Probably not. I, I think that if they, if they get to ride that, the bike together or if Daryl gets to even see the bike, or maybe the bike is key in some way to Darrow's ability to go do something in Mars. You know, that would be all of that would be excellent. Not necessary, but excellent. Mm-hmm. So we return to reality, though, and find our makeshift fleet of Volk, the daughters and the Shadow Armada assembling together into a force meant to fight back against the society once and for all. However, Gaia calling Severo mutant as he charges in <laughs> to return to his brother. I, I mean, man. It's a tough moment in the way that it's these two seeing each other for the first time since, but also there's just that little bit of levity and humor and to finally have him back in this moment where he's been missing for most of this chunk of the book of brothers, you know, is a, it's a great return. Yeah. Oh, and that's the, he's in that like dog mech thing, right? Hound. Like that's, isn't that what a guy is referring to? I didn't think so. I thought it's uh, it was like uh, she sees something bounding down. Yeah, he's descending a building. She points to a strange figure descending a building, riven down its center by an orbital strike. The figure leaps from one side of the fissure to the other before bounding our way. I run toward him and he stops, takes off his helmet and opens his arms for a hug. I think okay. he's just in grab yeah. boots. Okay. I think okay. it's just her commenting on Severo being a mutant. <laughs> the, the word <laughs> being bounding, for whatever reason, made sure. me think like that. What, what was the name of that dog thing that he was like piloting? Whatever it was from a few chapters ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. The, well, wasn't, weren't they just in the suits? The God Killer? No, he was, he was like a weird dog. Way back in the beginning of the book? I can't remember how long ago it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. It was way back in the beginning of the book. Um, but I do remember uh, when they're in Apple's prison. Because he comes out in the mech suit. And that's his first appearance. No, not that suit. Not the Drakenjaeger. I don't know what like, dog there, thing there, you're talking about. There's some hound and Diomedes is going to like shoot it down or something like that. And Darrow's like, no, that's Severo. I can't remember who I can't remember who that again, with. I think is just him talking about. No, like, it, I think it, it's, it's just some, a perpetuated it's joke. It has a name. It has a name. Well, the Kuan it's Hound is there. That's the one. That's what but, I'm talking but about. But that's an actual dog. Oh, there was an actual dog there in that scene. I and thought then, that was like a dog Diomedes, mech that no, no, no. was piloting. It's, 
No, no, no. It's the Kuan Hounds from Iron Gold. What the um, shit? <laughs> Severo, Severo is just Severo, and Diabetes thinks he's fucking. <laughs> he needs to shoot him because he's a weirdo. <laughs> Which is again the same joke the guy is making here. So Severo is such a freak <laughs> that everyone thinks he's a dog or a mutant. I completely misunderstood all of this. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> this is just making fun of Severo for being who he is. All right. Um, yep. Yeah, oh, fuck up. All good. I don't, I don't blame you. <laughs> Very funny. That made me laugh oh, really, really hard. That was <laughs> My good. own incompetence um, made me laugh really hard. I mean, hey, cheers to you. But it was it, it's a it's a good bit inside the story, just in general, the way that Severo's made fun of. So I appreciate that. But yeah. Yeah. Lyria is here as well with Volga as all these people catch the ash from the planet and the damage that Lysander has done to the rim. Their faces are wiped down in ash as well as the Volk approach to kind of give this sort of symbolism of understanding between the Volk and the rim in hope, which is more than Darrow could ever dream of doing as far as damage goes to the rim. The Covenant comes out, which is this giant sheet, this giant agreement that is a crucial document for the future of what is to come between all of these parties at present. It's not perfect by any means, but it's an agreement to end this war in amnesty for those who need it and such. I can't help but make the connection to the first contract. <laughs> Stamped, Stamped in metal. metal. Can't be yep. changed. Yep. Yeah. I like that it was intentionally like kept vague. Makes sense for the situation and how rushed they are to produce something. So, yeah. Yeah predominantly composed of five things and those five things are like amnesty for the volk but they'll never return past the asteroid belt and you know all these other components the, the treaty for 10 years yada 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 like to it. follow it up yeah it's it's a great little moment that at the very least shows that like this is a big deal between them even though um parties don't necessarily fully agree there there has to be some semblance of process to go forward here right so Dara makes a pass at a unifying speech and it carries weight, but it is Ore of whom comes through the strongest. She says, people who yearn for something more, for something they've never had, moon, grimace, they're trying to reclaim what they have lost, control. There's nothing sacred in that. They do not lead. They pull, they corral, they confine. Their path has only room for one. Your path has room for you all. Remember that. From this ash, freedom will grow. Motherfucker, who in this book isn't an like, accomplished orator at this point? <laughs> but all in their own ways. You I know, know like but they're all really approach. fucking good. Like, yeah. these, these speeches are great. This is mm-hmm. fucking Pierce. Should, yeah, man. I don't know. Be a speechwriter for someone. A politician? Yeah. He probably gets paid better as a, as a best-selling author. Of, uh... I would imagine he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. I, I really appreciate the way that this is approached and the way that it's written. So mm-hmm. in Lyria, finally is has to come to grips in terms with seeing the way that like and, and us seeing her really come to grips with the way that she's lost her friend or little Eaglet, oh. Eaglet one. <laughs> You know, it hurts. Eaglet one. Fuck. That's hard. It's tough. It's. Yeah. All of it sucks. (laughs) All of it sucks so much to deal with. I just I I feel genuine 
loss, I think, for Lyria, too, especially because she was he was so important to her in the way that she felt acknowledged by a gold in mm-hmm. a way that like Darrow could never be right. And Severo is to some degree, but he's got his own baggage. So like Cassius felt like the sort of welcoming arms of sorts. Yeah. They connected for Lyria in from gold. a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. It was a it was a big deal. It was serious. So Athena has decided in this moment to stay behind inside of the rim to help repair relations as much as possible and help keep people alive here. And the deal between her and Darrow is altered. They're going to need food to survive. So Darrow is expected to bring Pyrophoros back at a different time with the food from Martian cattle and Martian crops and all this these other components to help feed the rim. Darrow also thanks Ori, Ori for all she did in the journey in this odyssey. She says, but he didn't need a woman's love. He needed a brother's. The way he talked about you, well, Lysander was an obligation. You were an aspiration. When he died, he knew he was loved. If we do not meet again, I will see you in the Vale with Cassius. You know the path. I like that he gets distinguished Darrow gets distinguished from Lysander in this moment in Cassius's head. I think I think it rings mm-hmm. true, and I think um, yeah. truly, I think that Darrow will be able to cope with Cassius Cassius's death a little bit better as a result of this single <laughs> single comment from Ore. Like this was very needed, I think, and true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We then move to the Archimedes approaching and Darrow and Severo approaching it. Their steps heavy again, just like they were back in Iron Gold in that initial triumph. Memento Mori mentioned during that that time frame all those years ago, even in our podcast, which is crazy. And we're surrounded by Cassius. We find his body, of course, shortly thereafter and honor it. And it's a hard moment among our friends. They get a moment as Pytha told Severo that he killed Atlas And that leaves him as Cassius Bologna, the man who killed fear. The only thing that sucks is that it's technically a lie, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, he did all the hard work. Like we talked about earlier last yesterday. So it's barely a lie, but it's still it's still propaganda controlled by Lysander. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is ultimately because he could have withheld it. Right. He could have not said it. But. It's an honorific, like it's an honor to be the person that killed fear. Mm-hmm. But is it true? <laughs> Mostly, but not technically. Yeah, it it is. I mean, at what point does he defeated him? If he if didn't nothing kill else, him. he's the man who broke fear. You yeah. know, like he didn't kill him by a technicality that Lysander wanted control of the moment and shot him in the brains before he. You know, right. It'd spill more beans, but the beans were already spilled enough. Spilled enough. Spilled enough. Got to go corral those beans. Got to gotta find the beans, man. So, yeah, I particularly appreciated falling back to the cold steps and the way that we get that physical thunk as they, you know, lift up and drop their heels and sort of the weight of the weight of what's happening, the weight of what's coming and just that physicality again between mm-hmm. the pair of them. Yeah. As they both are willing to step forward into the new war, kind of like they were at the very beginning of the series. Absolutely. Reinvigorated passion towards their objectives. 
So we then get to the recounting of things and see the room, Cassius's room, all of his notes on the walls of his friends plastered everywhere, the howlers and news clippings, all these mementos of the past, but the hollow projector he stares at. And there are him and Cassius in the lake back at the Institute, Severo lurking in the background. Of course, Cassius spent his time all those years ago missing his friends and reminiscing about the old days. Of course, that's what he was doing. But the pair settle on, you know, they, they ask the question of where do we start? And they say at the beginning and they watch the story of them unfold with the very first time where they stole the horses all the way back in Red Rising. It's so sweet. And I, I do love that we get several included in those, like in the bushes wanking off, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Great that that's there too. I I go back and I read I reread a lot of these books in different times, but I haven't frequently gone back to reread Red Rising itself, in part because I, I it's my least favorite of the books, you know, and I, I think that the other books do a lot of things better that I appreciate more. But there is nothing quite like this ending that makes me go, God, you're right. That is a highlight reel. Like it is a moment in time. This is a snow globe. It's the it's a similar snow globe to what we see like Pax want to shake. And so these are all memories. This whole chapter is a memory. This whole chapter is a snow globe. And, you know, it's forever captured in time at the very least. But you can't you can't step into frame with it Mm -hmm. again. So it's kind of tragic. It is. (sighs) So our very last lines here, our last paragraph of the book to end it all. Is, of course, from Darrow, he says, I've already tried a type beam to Mars. I don't know if they received my message. So I take Pax's key in my hand and send a silent message to Virginia and my boy. He says, I love you. I'm coming home. I have an army. I have an armada. We will win. For EO, for Ragnar, for Fitchner, for Fitchner, for Cassius, for them all. Man, Fuck. I like like I mentioned a couple times already. I was worried about like last week we talked about this. I was worried that this wouldn't feel like the end of a book and it totally does. It 100% completely brutally tragically does. Yeah. It does. It does feel like an end in a, in a lot of ways. It feels very complete. It feels like a a full circle. It feels like we've cut off a number of things and solved a number of problems. Many remain and many wrinkles continue to be added to the story, but it does, it does end satisfactorily. I think I, I think I said that to you a couple of weeks ago when you're like, I don't know how he's going to do this. And I was like, don't worry. It's satisfying. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It, cool. It, yep. <laughs> well, PJ, that's the book. That's the book. We're, we're out of, we're out of red rising again until the man gets done with another one damn it <laughs> yeah, hurry up. i know right hurry up already but we've got um, some great books to to fill our time with we do we do have some great books to fill our time with i'm very excited for what's coming next again just as a reminder like we'd put on the episode that came out yesterday we will have a postseason of course here that'll be three to four episodes ish i think i've got we've got two of four perfectly lined up and we're we're working on some other finer details and planning the other ones, but very excited for what's going on there. And then after that, we will begin the first law. The capacity to which we begin the first law 
might be a different beast. Unsure. Um, I, I've had some debates about internally about considering doing coverage a little bit differently. And we've talked about that. You and I have talked about this on and off, but yeah, we, I, you know, we've, we've kept our, our sort of, I've kept my leash on quite a bit over the course of the series and kept kind of this sort of dramatic pace like we, we do with these. But a part of me is pro maybe letting a little bit more of the rope go. We'll see. We got to figure that out, but <laughs> we'll find out another topic for another time. You've got a month basically until we'll, you'll know for sure, but I'm very excited to, to cover that by all accounts in our ask for a Neil Gaiman book to cover at some point to either break up Abercrombie or going pre back into Lightbringer or what have you. The Neil Gaiman book that one is American Gods, of which no shocker is my favorite <laughs> of the of the books. So that works out. So we'll probably do that one as as an interim book at some point. So Perfect. Very excited. Okay. With that, PJ, do you have any closing thoughts on the book as a whole? Anything else that you want to get out there? Oh, man. I, I mean, just, we have wrap-ups to talk about stuff, but, you know. We have wrap-ups wrap to talk about stuff, and I, I think I'll need that. I'll need some time to yeah. – I'm probably going Digest. to just blitz through this book again because I had such a great time going through – the first five leading up to this mm -hmm. book in the format that everybody else reads it in basically a single nonstop shot or nonstop mm -hmm. shot. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to totally reapproach this book. Maybe even by the time we start recording our, our uh, wrap up episodes, which are in a few days. So we'll see, but I'm, I'm excited. I love the story already and I'm sure I will get something completely different out of it at the at the fast pace that i'm planning on taking it so yeah i'm i'm excited for that reread of course and and what that looks like and i i'm probably not going to reread it again before we do our our stuff because that's okay you know i'm at like four times already this year and it's only been out for four months or something like that so <laughs> i'm good <laughs> but yeah i i very much enjoyed this book i'm curious Putting you a little bit on the spot here, just to kind of close out the episode, where would you rank this in your book ranking? Hmm. Obviously, recency bias is a thing, but how Brief. do you feel about this book? I feel really good about it. I don't know if it tops Dark Age, though. Hmm. Okay. I think I'd still put that ahead of it, but I, I, I think I need to... Dark Age came <laughs> out as your favorite book, yeah? Yeah. 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 So that makes sense. Neck and neck with it, but I think slightly behind it. Yeah. Just because like I, I fucking love all the battle scenes with it. Like there, there are decent, there's a decent amount within this book, but not to the density that, it, that there is in dark age. Yeah. They, they do have similar, but different tones, right? They're, you know, I'm, I'm curious in the companion piece, you know, as, as I think about these, it's like duologies almost, but yeah, mm. yeah, good point. I, I think my result is that I think that even given now the distance in time, it is a really tough call on whether or not this is my favorite book or Iron Gold is. Um, on any given day, I'd swing back and forth. 
Uh, but recency bias for me has faded, especially considering the number of laps that I've done around this book since we've started doing this. So fair. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to make a call at some point on one of these wrap up episodes when we inevitably bring this question up again with you having a little <laughs> bit more time to think about it. But it's up there. It's up there, man. This is. Yeah. I mean, Tharsis was in this book. You remember that shit? Apollonia said a huge chunk of this book. It's been, it's just been a bit since, you know, it's crazy to think how much is contained instead of a book that is shorter than Dark Age, too. True. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, we have some predictions to pay off. We'll start an episode at some point with you getting a little buzzed because you are pretty much just drinking. I think so. Probably. Yeah. So with that, we will be back next week with our first wrap-up. I'm going to make the game call. I think it's going to be the one with our friends from Hallerpod and High Key Obsessed. I believe that that is the one that we're going to have out on Thursday. So that should be the first one of our series of wrap-ups. You'll see a lot of familiar guests coming back, of course, to the show. But that should be the first one. If it's not, it's Hail Reaper. So it's one or the other. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... Very, very excited to have all of our different friends back onto the show to talk about their feelings about Lightbringer. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, as always, to Tim and Andrew for being the backbone of our show and keeping the keeping the lights on. You, dear listeners, check out our show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, all in one very nice, easy, convenient location. Notably, the schedule totally up in the air at this point as we've discussed so uh, yeah yeah Yeah, the schedule is not currently up to date but it will be soon with the when uh, we figure it out well i mean it will be up (laughs) soon yes it will be up soon when we figure it out i'll have the postseason episodes just delineated with dates who is where who knows but i will have the we'll come to a result with how we're going to break down and talk about the blade itself and the subsequent books soon. So mm-hmm. very excited to go there. Beyond that, as PJ had mentioned, all those links are there. But when you go to wherever those links follow, if they have a place to review us, you must review us. If you don't review us, I will do... There's, so, ma- there's so many... <laughs> There's so many bad things to talk about in this section that I'm just going to vaguely threaten that something within this section will happen to you mm-hmm. if you don't leave a five-star review. Ominous, and if anything bad happens to you and you left us a bad review, just blame Crossland and, I don't know, take him to court or something. I was there. <laughs> I walked that red stoplight that you were trying to run. You almost hit me and then swerved into a tree. That was me. Oh, terrifying. Beyond that, find us on all the socials. Words Whiskey Pod and Threads and Blue Sky. Predominantly Threads. We'll see if Blue Sky takes off. Who knows? <laughs> Instagram and Reddit, of course, at the same Words Whiskey Pod. Send us any emails or anything like that. Words and Whiskey Show, gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash Words and Whiskey. And t-shirts on Tee Public. Look out for a couple of new general announcements coming out for a lot of the things that we've going on through the month of December. So we've got a lot of we got a lot of stuff going on. I got to fit that in before the end of the year. Naturally. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. We will see you next week. Bye, everybody. 